0: At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
1: From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Many of you know my guest this episode from this. His name is Andrew Reynolds.
0: Hello. My name is Elder Price. And I would like to share with you the most amazing book. He was a star of the Broadway
1: hit Book of Mormon.
0: I believe that Satan
1: has a hold of you. Andrew is also known for other Broadway roles falsettos, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. On top of that amazing performance, uh, Andrew's also starred on TV shows like HBO's Girls and most recently Black Monday on Showtime. But in this episode, we are going to talk about the Andrew Rannells you do not know, the awkward kid from Omaha, Nebraska, who came out of the closet right before he moved to New York to make it big on Broadway. Obviously, Andrew made it big, but that took years. Andrew's new book talks about those years. It's called Too Much Is Not Enough, A Memoir of Fumbling Toward Adulthood. We talk about that book and failed auditions and awful dorms and skeezy bars. We also in this chat talk about sex and we talk about an abusive relationship as well. So this may not be the best chat for kids to hear. All right. With all that, let's get to it. Here is me with Andrew Rannells. I was in L.A. Andrew was in New York. Enjoy.
0: You'll be a Mormon, by gosh, a Mormon. Just, just
1: I'm trying to think of the right way to describe the photo of you on the cover. It is just a delight.
0: What would you call that hair? Um, that is some late '90s. <coughs> uh, yes like Realness. almost jonathan taylor thomas situation yeah <laughs> yes. it's a very specific kind of zach Morrissey idea i'm so into it yeah not zach morris not to be confused with Morrissey in any way yeah. shape or form yeah but zach morris ish zach morris ish exactly there we, go. there we go exactly so
1: the subtitle for this book is called a memoir of fumbling toward adulthood and i like the way you frame it you basically say right at the top this is not the book where I tell you all of my biggest shining accomplishments this is not the fancy Playbill bio this is like the messy stuff that's not in the Wikipedia page That is, great. I like that thank you how did you get to being okay
0: sharing that bio. <laughs> well, that stuff, you know, those years to me, I moved here in New York in 1997. Um, I did not, was not cast in my first Broadway show until December of 2004. So Ooh. it was it was quite some time of me kicking around in mm-hmm. the city, trying to figure out how to break into this world that I so desperately wanted to be a part of. And uh, it took a while. And wow. I, you know, I was thinking a lot about... Um, you know, the Broadway fan base, these young people who come to the stage door and they see the show multiple times and they're, it's, it's a very supportive, really enthusiastic group of folks, not all young, but a lot of them are very young. And Mm -hmm. I certainly was one of those kids. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they would ask for tips. They never said shortcuts, but that was always implied. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there's not really a shortcut. And even if there was a shortcut, you probably don't want to take it because it's not going to ultimately get you where you Mm want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted, that's another reason why I wanted to focus on that particular time was because those stories are important and all of that takes you to where you're supposed to be. So I wanted to share those stories rather than just like, this is what the Book of Mormon was like, or this Mm -hmm. is what Lena Dunham is like, like, and those stories are really fun too, but that's maybe for a later time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So
0: there was an essay you published in the New York Times in
1: 2017 for their modern love series, uh, I read that that was kind of the inspiration to do a whole book of essays.
0: Yeah, I had written that essay um, and then a handful of other ones. So my agent and friend, Bill Clegg, who's also a really talented writer himself, Mm -hmm. he said, you know, do you mind if I share this with Dan Jones at the Times? And I kind of expected it to take, you know, a long time to obviously reach him and then Mm -hmm. have it be decided on. But it actually, it came together much faster than I thought. But the nice part about that was that then when it was published and there was some interest in, you know, has he written anything else? I had, you know, 10 other essays that I was comfortable sharing at that point. So Bill Clay really tricked me into uh, (laughs) into writing this, but I'm very grateful that he did because it was a really fun process.
1: And I don't want you to give the whole thing away to folks that haven't read it yet, but how much of that essay can you describe for our listeners? Because it
0: really, it sat with me for a long time. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for saying that. I um. I was on sort of a, a really sort of half-hearted second date with someone the night that my father died. Um, well, he didn't exactly die in that moment, but he. Um, I was here in New York. My whole family's in Omaha, Nebraska. And he collapsed after having a heart attack at my niece's first birthday party. And there were a series of phone calls that went unanswered to me because I was on this date on and I date. was trying yeah. to like live my life. And uh, I only checked my voicemail after I had sex with this person, like again, sort of not fully invested in the in the act, but um, <laughs> decided We've all I' would been there. G- decided I would give it a shot. and um, <laughs> and then I had to get all of these messages and receive this information as this pretty much stranger was sitting in my apartment and at one point um, naked like standing in front of you for as most of like... the time he remained <laughs> nude now my knee jerk <laughs> would have been to put on some clothes a little bit um yeah. but i think maybe he was so thrown and he w- really was trying to be very nice and i just was yeah. not in a a place to receive that uh generosity <laughs> um <laughs> but it was crazy after that was published that multiple people said to me they had similar stories which i thought was just nuts because i figured i was like how common can this be but turns
1: out i've been the brad before you have i have been the brad before and i'm not gonna tell the whole story but i was the one we're gonna want to hear that story (laughs) i was the one who needed to leave the apartment after uh, a newish partner's like best friend died oof did you put on clothes i put on clothes right away That's smart I said, I'll be praying for you and your family and friends. And I'm going to tiptoe out of here. Bye-bye. Yeah. Also, what I love that your essay underscores is that sometimes sex, sometimes romantic partnership is not great. Like, not all of it is good. Not all of it is fulfilling. You know, you can't always bat a thousand in that area of your life.
0: And that's another thing that, like, you know, I don't... I mean, I'm sure it's talked about more than I realize, but, like, sort of acknowledging that and also... Allowing yourself to have those experiences without judging yourself too harshly for it afterwards is totally, it's just like part of growing up. Oh, yeah. So you're not going to fall in love with everybody and they're not all going to work out. You know, and the correlation that I try to draw in the book a little bit is that, you know, everybody is trying their best, whether it's relationships or auditions or job interviews or like everybody's trying to get where they want to go. It's just, it Mm -hmm. doesn't, it's just generally not that clean. Exactly. (laughs) The open of your book
1: is. Literally, the quintessential New York story. Like, young kid comes to New York from Omaha, Nebraska to make it big. That's it. But, like, this iconic story... Is complicated by the fact
0: that three days was it three days before you come to New York? You also come out to your parents. And look, no one was surprised. No one was surprised (laughs) at my coming out. But I, you know, in retrospect, I should have done it probably at the beginning of the summer, um, just to have Mm -hmm. some time to sort of sit with it and like everybody, we could you know talk about it. Instead, I did it and I hightailed it out of town. (laughs) Um, And you know, there wasn't an issue really. Like everybody was cool. Like it was there was not a problem. Um, which then made it a little harder that I just like less just Then moved. Cause then like nobody yeah. could really talk about it. Nobody could really, and even though it wasn't that long ago, it was just like, you know, I didn't have a cell phone. Um, mm-hmm. so it really did all rely on phone calls, which at 19, when you're living in New York city for the first time is I wasn't great at it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think that last
1: summer in Omaha would have been like, had you come out at the beginning of the summer?
0: Well, I think it would have allowed for some more conversations about it. Particularly, it would have been nice to have a few more chats with my dad about it. Mm. Because initially, my dad did that thing that I think a lot of parents do, maybe a lot of fathers do, where he was like, well, I don't think you have to be this way. Mm-hmm. But if you're choosing to be this way, I support I you and I you. love you. But and if it's a phase, also, that's cool. Yes, yes. Um <laughs> But then when I came home for Christmas, just a few mm-hmm. months later, mm-hmm. he said, um, I've been thinking about it. And I remembered that when you were five, you wanted to be a solid gold dancer. Mm-hmm. So I realize now that um, you were probably born this way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love it. I, I like, love it. Yes, dad. That is correct. <laughs> the
1: worst of the folks in your family or any family where you come out and like that, like you just didn't come out and they just want to forget it. And you're yeah. like, am I going to have to tell you this again in a year?
0: Well, there is that, and I remember going through that, as everybody has to at some point when you, I mean, I don't anymore at 40 years old, but, you know, when you meet people and you're constantly having to have that conversation, even with strangers, like new jobs, like who's gay, who's straight, and like you do it, I mean, you mostly do it in your 20s, but... um, Good Lord, like just the constant coming out, and then all of the stupid and weird things that people say to you. <laughs> in oh, yeah. oh,
1: yeah. Um, and even people that should know better. Like, I cannot yeah. tell you how many women are like, oh, we get to go buy shoes now. No, we don't.
0: No, we're not doing no, that. No, we don't. No, my friends and I were just talking this weekend about when, um, and it's meant as a compliment, but when women go, what a waste. You're like, well, it's <laughs> not like, a what? waste for me, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, my life
1: is not wasted. <laughs> Especially in that department,
0: buddy. No, I'm doing fine. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not wasting this. All right, time for a break. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Rothy's. Rothy's is the everyday flat for life on the go that comes in four fashionable styles for women. The flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker. Fun designs and patterns while still looking polished and professional with new colors launched every few weeks. Best of all, Rothies are made from recycled plastic water bottles and completely machine washable, so you can feel good about wearing them. Go to rothies.com and enter code MINUTE to get your flats and free shipping. This season on Invisibilia. Should we empathize with our enemies? Femmoids should die. Is it okay to have machines control our emotions? I should be kind of creeped out, but at the same time, I'm like, well, thank God I live in this day and age. No easy answers just the right questions. Invisibilia, back on March 8th.
1: I want to go back to an essay in the book, um, the one where you talk about being a 16-year-old in high school in Omaha and mm-hmm. having a fling with a significantly older man. He was, what, yeah, 40? 40. Um, I want to walk through some of that because I think there's some, like, big, like, lessons there like so you're 16 you're doing yeah. theater in high school he's involved in the community theater mm-hmm. and before you know it he is trying to sleep with you
0: yeah yeah it was as slow as it's you know now we know it's like you know how people are sort of groomed uh, mm-hmm. to be in those sexual uh, mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. he was definitely grooming me in that way and and you know he 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 knew what he was dealing with. I didn't exactly know what I was dealing with or where we were going, Um, Mm -hmm. but he certainly knew where we were going. And then it happened the first time we had sex the first time. And, um, you know, it turned into like almost two years of this very tortured, me feeling really gross and terrible about it and him making me feel gross and terrible about it. And um, and And he was... awful like yeah you tried to break awful.
1: it off and then he yeah. wouldn't let you and then at one point yeah. his actual boyfriend finds out and tries yeah. to come after you as well
0: yeah. this guy
1: shows up outside of your house at one point it was crazy it's Not great
0: not great and you know at that age it's 16 17 um you think you're smart enough to sort of get yourself involved in things or handle yeah. yourself or so i certainly was not about to speak to anybody about this because it was my problem i created this problem therefore i should be able to get myself out of it mm-hmm. and you know the thing that i really wish that i knew then uh, was that i had the right to stop it at any time and i just was not smart enough or well um savvy enough to 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 get out of it and you were also um, 16. I was and, 16 and, and like yeah. it's hard to know
1: and to conceptualize and realize that you aren't his equal he no. has a lot more power. He has yes. a lot more life lived. And like, he took advantage of you and like, you don't know it in, in large part because the culture writ large tells us all that horny teenagers around 16 or 17, whether they're straight or gay, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Because they're just horny teenage boys. Yeah. And we forget yeah,
0: in that conceptualization that you were being victimized sexually. Yeah. Well, and that also certainly factored into it. This was in the, you know, the mid-90s in Nebraska, so I think that he also knew I was not going to be running to mm-hmm. anyone to tell them about yeah. this because there yeah. was a certain amount of shame and privacy involved in all of it. So that that he knew he had me on several different counts here. Mm-hmm. Um and he was correct. Like I didn't really feel like I could talk to anybody about it. So and it was it was it was good for me to um to write it like this yeah. with this much time was it time. cathartic yeah cause I feel like you know I could forgive that kid and I could um I always just sort of remembered him as just being dumb kind of being like you know like a dumb kid who didn't really know what he was getting into and now I can look back on him and be like no you were vulnerable and you thought you knew more than you did and you were trying to make the best choices and, and I was able to sort of forgive him
1: yeah
0: what i like about that story and what i like about
1: you in your public life is that you are particularly candid uh about normalizing discussions of gay sex and i think i've heard you mention this before but like you know straight people get to talk about romance and sex all the time yeah and i think there's a lot of gayness in the world where you get to be gay but just don't tell me about those icky parts. Yes. And I like how you're like, no, that's part of it too.
0: Listen. Well, yeah, it is part of it. Um, And I feel like that was something that I noticed a lot. And, you know, luckily for me on Girls, the character that I played was able to have relationships and they were not, um they were a little messy and, but they were very honest. And um then I just found it easier to talk about my own experiences mm. because like you said, that's all part of it. And not that it's, you know, appropriate for every situation. Like, I, you know, yeah. probably would not be having this chat with Hoda Kotb right now, but <laughs> Maybe, I'm sure she welcome it. Maybe privately. Um <laughs> I mean I'd love to talk to Hoda. But uh, but you know what I mean, like I, you know, but yeah. in certain situations, yes, I feel like you should just be as transparent as possible. Like I took you know, t- took some not flack, but it was funny, like the reaction I mentioned on Andy Cohen's show that when I was in hairspray, my boyfriend was also in the show at the time and, and that we had sex in my dressing room at intermission. Um,
1: <laughs> hey, listen, that, you and are living
0: someone's dream. <laughs> it was just like a one-off story. Here, I'm saying it again publicly. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like crazy stuff that I did in my 20s, and I felt yeah. like, well, I should be able to talk about that, right? Exactly. That's just like, I'm not doing it now. Were folks mad? Um, I don't know if people were mad, but I think some people were sort of like, why would you say that?
1: But also, why it's Watch you... What Happens Live. If there's well, anywhere yes. you
0: can tell that story, exactly. It's there.
1: And he's a friend. So, <laughs> so you get to New York. And this iconic New York story is also complicated further by where you go
0: to school and the dorm you end up in. Yes, so the first dorm that I lived in was on Fifty Seventh and Lexington, and if you're in New York City listening to this, it now is like a Kenneth Cole maybe, and it's like a hotel, about right. and there's a probably restaurant. a Sephora, there's a Sephora, yeah, there's, there's like a whole situation. But in 1997, it was. It was a weird combination that was like part welfare hotel, part student <laughs> housing for like all sorts of different not just That'll work. but yeah, so it was like this <laughs> weird combo where like and it was also like an SRO thing where the bathrooms were in the halls so you didn't actually have your own bathroom, you were sharing God. and it was really weird and the rooms were yeah, probably like it's like an 8 by 10 room a cell. Um, <laughs> that just had like a twin bed and a sink and my window faced an air shaft which was like in some ways it was like sort of perfect because it was like it couldn't have been more hideous or more tragic um i still get hives and anxiety when i'm in that neighborhood and it's been really? over 20 years yeah really? I, I don't know there's something about that like 59th and lexington street area that i'm just like i can't i can't do it <laughs> it just brings back <laughs> very anxious memories you ever talked to folks that used to live there when you were there um, you know, what? I really I don't. And again, this is just like a part of how New York works. And I think for everybody, not just for actors, but the number of people that moved here that year who were you know, going to become actors, the number of them that moved away, mm-hmm. um, it's the numbers are, are pretty high. And even people that I did Hairspray with, like, you know, here we all were like in our mid 20s working on Broadway, I would say roughly half of the people I did that show with no longer act.
1: Was there a moment when you felt like leaving? Especially in those um, seven years where you're just waiting for the first thing to happen.
0: Yeah. Like three or four years in, I really thought I had like I had met somebody who suggested they're like, you know where you could get a job right now? Disney World. You could go be a Prince Charming, it'd be so easy for you. And like and I like had this momentary thought of really? should I go work in a theme park? Would that make it's my life solid money so much easier? And I remember just sort of floating it to my friend Zuzanna who is my best friend and she looked at me like I was out of my mind and was like what <laughs> I was like you're okay alright I hear you um, and then I realized there was no other options like I was like I you just have stay. to stay here now I'm just yeah. this is it speaking of
1: Zuzanna I- and I want to say it right. It's Susanna with a Z. It's Zuzanna. So, Susanna. Yeah. Yeah. Um I love the essay you write about your relationship with her. Oh, uh, thank you. She was someone who came to New York City from somewhere else. She was what, from Florida,
0: right? She was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Indiana, but y'all met in Florida. We met in Florida. We met at a college scholarship audition, but we, yeah, we moved That's here it. the same month.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so you tell this lovely story of the two of you. Underage, fresh in the city, (laughs) finding this little piano bar that lets you in and lets you drink and also lets you sing. And if
0: I recall correctly, you sang some Barry Manilow? I sang Copacabana. Yes. I marched right up to that microphone before anyone could card me. And I was (laughs) like, Copacabana, please. Um, With with no fear. And they never carded us. No. Wow. I I know. And then, like, years later, we went in there and they were like, those kids have been coming in here since they were too young to drink. Um, (laughs) Yeah. it's a sweet story it is a sweet story when is the last time you walked into a random bar in New York City and sang um my friend Jill Maddio just had her baby shower at a place uh-huh. called Sid Gold's Room on Twenty Sixth Street, um, uh-huh. which is a very fun piano bar. But she had a piano bar baby shower, so yes. I sang. Yeah, I know it was like the drunkest baby shower. I think everyone was <laughs> like initially everybody was like, "What's happening?" And then by the end of it, when everyone, everyone was just loaded and singing, it was like this is the best ever. So, back to the story of Zuzana.
1: Am I saying it right?
0: You are. Okay, Susanna. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: There is... So you spend the essay kind of describing the parameters of y'all's friendship and what she means to you. You say that she makes you feel, quote, that person is a lot like me. And if they exist and they act and think similarly to me, that must mean that I am not a mistake. And maybe, just maybe, there are even more people out there like us. It was really beautiful. Thank you. And then I was thinking, I was like, huh, I wonder if you ever think that you are some strangers zuzanna when they see you in these roles
0: um yeah i mean i think i know what you're saying like um i do i think particularly elijah from girls like yeah i think a lot of young women you know there are certain points in your life where having an elijah around might be fun um <laughs> though, but also
1: for like young men who don't yeah. know what it's like to be who they are. I'm sure seeing you must say to them, Oh, I'm not a mistake. Yeah. You know, there's someone on screen who is gay and into music and awkward
0: and whatever. And yeah. like, you're there. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, you know, the great part and sort of the awkward part about girls was that what Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor, you know, really presented was this extremely honest look at what it is to be sort of lost at that point in your life. And yeah. that was, um, I think, at least hopeful that there's always time to, to pull yourself together, even if you've been a mess uh, previously. <laughs> you, there's oh, yeah. always there's always time to sort that out. Um yeah. But I hope so. And I hope that with this book, like, you know, this is certainly the most personal thing I've ever done. And there's there's not a character in between me and these stories. So it's it's really just people getting to know me, um, which is exciting, but also, you know, a little nerve wracking. Yeah. So, you know, like
1: I I was thinking a lot about like that essay and Susanna, and, you know, being a person that allows other people to know that they are not a mistake and that there's someone just like them. And, like, it made me think more about, like, whether or not you feel, whether it's through this book, whether it's through your acting, whether you feel like sometimes you have to be or are a role model for younger queer people, and if that is ever a pressure.
0: Um, it's certainly a pressure, but I feel like... Uh, it's a it's a good one. Hmm. I mean, I had I had some role models growing up that were very helpful, and um, I mean, I, I can't you know say that I'm an activist twenty four seven a day. I just mm-hmm. I, I think that the only thing I can really do in terms of my personal activism is to try to live as honestly as possible. So I might not always be on a parade float, but um, <laughs> if anybody um, if anybody has questions about everyday <laughs> life, I can certainly handle those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are
1: there ever roles, gay roles, that you will not take because you're
0: worried about what they model for young gay people? Well, I talk about it a little bit um, in the book that I, early, very early in my career, I I did this children, basically this large-scale children's production of a show called Pokemon Live. And (laughs) uh, the character I play was one of the villains, and he was a very sort of... Over the top, sort of, he was, like, the fop, basically, in this story, and it required doing this, like, what I considered to be, like, a very gross generalization and uh, sort of depiction of, of a gay person. It was just, mm-hmm. like, so, so ridiculous and so stupid. What was the worst part of that caricature? Um, seeing kids watch it um Mm. because like i was getting laughs for doing things that i wasn't proud of Mm. and knowing that there were kids in the audience and you know just because of the way that the world works there's going to be a bunch of gay ones out there um (laughs) and they thought somehow or if they did think about it that like that's how gay people have to act to be funny Mm. Um, and that was really hard. Uh, and I hated myself for being in a position where I felt like I had to take that job because I needed the money and, um, and I really sort of, I, I, I was so humiliated that I, mm. not just that it was Pokemon live, but that I was like, <laughs> playing this like gay clown in Pokemon live. So even though I was, you know, not, uh, my career again did not really like take off for quite some time but i just always tried to make sure that i was better about saving my money that i could put myself in choices where the sometimes the only thing you can do as an actor is say no to things mm. but i just wanted to make sure i was not going to put myself in that position again and then i'm happy to say that you know i i i didn't really play any gay characters again until girls because when Hmm. i was working on broadway i was playing all these straight guys in musical theater but uh really it was girls was the next time that i i played a gay character one more break when we come back andrew's
1: path to his first role in a broadway show that show was hairspray and also the failed audition along the way for a musical that was bankrolled by rosie o'donnell yeah brb This message is brought to you by
0: Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go.
1: On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. We may be on the verge of another sexual revolution. In this one, we turn to machines for companionship and sex. My main objective is to be a perfect companion. How artificial intelligence and robots are changing the landscape of love. This week on Hidden Brain. You say that your first like gay role was um, girls, but it could have been very different had the audition you had for Rosie O'Donnell worked out. Oh yeah, will you tell folks that yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, it's I'll,
0: hilarious. I'll tell that story. It was a, it was a painful one. So I had decided <laughs> to not act for a while. I was doing a lot of voiceover work, and mm-hmm. um, I was offered this job directing uh, voiceovers for animation, which seemed like a really great combination of like something creative but then also something very Stable. steady mm-hmm. and it was sh- you know shortly after my dad died so I was I was doing that for a couple of years, and then I got this audition from a casting director from Bernie Telsey's office who would ultimately cast me in Hairspray years later. Um, but I had auditioned for them quite a few times in the past, and they called me in for this audition. And I didn't really – I was like, well, I'm not really doing that anymore. But mm-hmm. then part of me was like, well, then who cares? Like then there's nothing mm-hmm. to lose if I go on this. Well, long story longer, I – ended up having several callbacks that lasted the course of a couple months of me just like going back in and back in and back in and um, getting notes and more notes and um and we should say like you were really
1: giving it all in these auditions like i was giving it water, all water bottles like why oh, yeah, do no. all the physical stuff you were doing in all
0: this right time. well first of all the show is called taboo and it was a broadway <laughs> musical about boy george yeah and the crazy thing about it was it was being solely produced by rosie o'donnell so that'll this was work <laughs> right after her talk show i believe the talk show was over but and I these numbers might be wrong, so don't mm-hmm. hold me to this. But I feel like it was like she had invested ten million dollars of her yeah. own money into this show. And she like that was she was gonna be the sole producer. And she loved the show so much, she saw it in London, she's like it's gonna be a huge hit and they had one part left and it was this it was a real person, um, mm-hmm. whose name was Marilyn, and Marilyn mm-hmm. was this sort of like kind of drag performer but like just this part of the lee bowery like underground Mm -hmm. london club scene Mm -hmm. and uh i didn't think that i was maybe like the best fit for it but i did i did do a regional production of hedwig and i was like so i kind of i could do this i got this so i went in there yes i really was going all out and what it actually ended up teaching me was that I auditioned as if I had nothing to lose, because I had nothing to lose, because I already had this job, so it didn't really matter. Um, so I should just do whatever I want, right? Yeah. And that's what I did. And it really, I had never auditioned like that before, because I was always so scared of like, oh, what if I go too far, or what yeah. if this isn't what they want? And this time you I was you like... You said you were humping the wall, throwing bottles of water. Yeah. What were you doing? I mean, I was just getting into it. Um, <laughs> And then the final step was they were like, okay, we're going to bring you back one more time to audition for Rosie O'Donnell. And Mm -hmm. I was so petrified, but also so excited. And I auditioned, and she watched me do it once. And then she said that I was very talented, but this Mm -hmm. was not going to be my part. (laughs) Because... Um, because she just thought she was like you're too. She thought I seemed too straight, you're too she just, Yes. So How she was dare like, "It just she? doesn't." I know. She was like, "You can't." In our own community. I know. She was like, "You could play this other part, but we already have a person for this part, and this is you should have been playing that part instead." But so it was this whole. It really just like messed with my head. Um, that I was like, well, "What's happening?" So I was very obviously injured emotionally yeah. by that. Um, yeah. The show did not go on to be the success <laughs> it was hoped to be. Um, Maybe you dodged a bullet. I might have dodged a bullet because I would have, I mean, I used to think about it all the time that I would have quit my job. I would have done that show. It would have closed, you know, closed like very quickly. Um, and then what the hell would I have done? Mm-hmm. What would I like, mm-hmm. what would have happened? Yeah. Um, so again, I think that, you know, ultimately it all sort of led me it to. It all worked out. It all worked out, but that it was a, that was a rough one, man. Well, and, and, and I like that you write about dealing with the loss like that
1: through anger or through sadness? And you said that you dealt with that one through anger, but the best (laughs) way to deal with it is through
0: sadness. Walk me through that. Well, because I got really hostile about the show. I got Mm. really, um, I used to like flip off posters on the street that I would see for Taboo, and I would just like be so angry about (laughs) it. That show. And my friends would be like, why do you care about that show? Because I didn't really tell anyone I was auditioning for it because I was, Mm. in the back of my mind, I was like, if this doesn't work out, I don't want to be embarrassed um, mm-hmm. but I would yeah I behaved very poorly about that one <laughs> just with it's not like publicly but just like in the my friend circle I was like that's ah, garbage like I was just such a brat about it and yeah. I realized that when the show closed and you know all those people thinking about those people then losing their jobs and not ha- you know not having that to do anymore I then felt very sad about it that I was like oh that was somebody else's dream as well mm-hmm. and it didn't work out so Yes, it was a it was a lesson learned there that, you know, you can certainly be pissed and you can have your feelings hurt and you can be disappointed, but to sort of try to punish other people for success, um, that doesn't really pay. So you
1: don't get the Rosen musical. No. How long after that audition are you still having to
0: direct voiceovers? I did that for about another year and a half. And then I just reached a point where I was like, I I was only 25 mm-hmm. and even though I felt much older than that. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I I feel like I need to quit my job. I was gonna buy an apartment, and I had all this money saved. And I was like, I'm gonna buy an apartment. And instead I thought, I'm gonna take that savings, and I'm gonna quit my job, and then just start auditioning again, and see what happens. And then. (laughs) So that's what I did.
1: How long after you quit the job, used that money, and started auditioning, before you got your first role?
0: That was about eight months before I got Hairspray. Okay. Which is, you know, it felt like a very long time. But but that's quick. It's pretty quick. Um, And I was doing a show, don't be jealous, I was doing a musical version of um, Karate Kid called It's (laughs) Karate Kid the Musical.
1: Wait, they can just call it Karate It's Karate Kid
0: the Musical. This is the the punctuation. (laughs) It's Karate, comma, kid, colon, the musical. (laughs) For legal purposes. (laughs) Oh, it wasn't like officially sanctioned. No, 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 no. So could no, y'all no, no, say no, no, the no.
1: signature lines? Could you say oh, yeah, off, we wax said,
0: We said wax on, wax off. We said sweep the leg. But all, it was like, <laughs> everything was like, it was so illegal. And it was just, oh my God. It was great. It was not great. What was your character? I was Johnny Lawrence. I was Johnny oh Lawrence. Oh um, goodness. Sweep the leg, Johnny. That was me. <laughs> um... Yeah. But we did that off, off Broadway, off, 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 off Broadway. Yeah. For in about Jersey a month. In Jersey or something. I don't and know. then we were in the Lower East Side in a okay. community center. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And we did it for about a month. And then in the middle of that, I auditioned for Hairspray. So it was kind of a crazy. Um, that is a juxtaposition. Yeah. <laughs> and I booked Hairspray like as it was ending. It was all sort of perfect. And um, yeah, it was a crazy way that, that all sort of yeah. played out.
1: In those moments when you were just about to give up, go home, pack it up, stop auditioning, what was the thing that like pushed you through? What was the thing you kept telling yourself? Was there a,
0: a touchstone you kept coming back to? Um, You know, the loss of my dad and the loss of my grandmother, I think, had a lot to do with sort of keeping me on track because I had taken myself so far away from my family and missed so much with them and mm. had not been there for so much That I thought if I gave up now and this is all for nothing and these last years Mm. mean nothing. And here I've Mm. missed like, you know, the death of my father and my grandmother dying and, you know, was not there for my mother. And if I just throw in the towel now, then then what was it for? Yeah. What did I do it for? Yeah. and you know that even though it sounds silly to you know talk about karate Kid or you know <laughs> working at a dinner theater in Westchester, like those jobs kept me in the city, and they kept me interested and they kept yeah. me focused and um and even I kept though it was sharp well, it wasn't the working. thing that I wanted to be doing, but like it certainly kept me in the right mindset, yeah, so um that was important. It was important that I was doing all that weird stuff,
1: and it all paid off, I guess so. Um. All right. We've talked about, I think we've talked about just about all that I want to talk about, but you're done with me. I'm not done with you. This I do it. have a special favor to ask of my producer, Brent. Um, both Brent and I were obsessed with the short lived TV show Smash. Oh, sure. <laughs> and who wasn't? Who wasn't? Get me Karen. Kyle, Brett- look right.
0: out. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I bring this up because one of my favorite scenes of girls, one of my favorite scenes of the last several years was you in the show Girls as Elijah Kranz <laughs> auditioning for the musical production of White, uh, Man, White Can't Man Can't Jump. Can't Jump. And yes. the song that you audition with is Let Me Be Your Star, one of yes. the themes from Smash. That
0: is correct. It was a very, Jenny Connor and I, um, Jenny was a showrunner and executive producer of Girls. We loved Smash so much. Oh, yeah. So when it came time to pick the audition song, we were like talking about r- random things. And then I, I looked know, at I her and I was like, are we out of our minds? <laughs> this is the greatest opportunity I have to yes. pay tribute to yes. Ivy
1: and yes. Karen.
0: Yes. Um, so let's just do it. So much to my surprise, we were able to get the rights. And then, um, which was really fun, was that Mark Shaman, um, wow. who's a friend of mine who wrote Hairspray, but also wrote Let Me Be Your Star with Scott Whitman, um, yeah. came to the set that day. Oh, my goodness. And he watched <laughs> <To> me. supervise. <laughs> he watched me perform <laughs> that number. She'll do all she can for the love of one man. I'll hear in my heart's pleading Let me be your star
1: <laughs> On that note, what musical role do you still want to play but haven't played
0: yet? Because I feel like at this point in your career, you can kind of get
1: a lot of any whatever role you want.
0: I feel like there's a lot of really great stuff that you just sort of have to age into. Like, everybody wants to play Sweeney Todd, myself included. But, like, that's Mm. something that you have to, like, you have to age into that. Or, like, Mm. a little night music. Like, it'd be great to be, a you know, Frederick. But it's... um. But there's a lot of things that I, you know, I would love to do another original musical. I've been very lucky to get to, to uh, you know, do some, a lot of revivals and to get to step into yeah. some things. But um, it'd be yeah. really fun to do a, a new show again. That would be nice.
1: Well, when you get ready to bring Smash
0: to Broadway, I'll be in the front row. <laughs> get me Karen Cartwright.
1: <laughs> yes. I'll, yes. I could play Jack's
0: part. Yes, that would be great.
1: That would be great. Well, I used thank- to go to
0: the gym with um just really quickly you can cut this out. Oh, but no. um, I would go to the gym with um with Dev. Um, oh yeah, Dev, I'm in tech. And oh. it took me a long time to um to work up the nerve to speak to him. He was very nice. But I would just really? be on a treadmill next to him saying over and over in my head, Dev, I'm in tech. <laughs> I love it. I love
1: it. <laughs> Andrew Reynolds, thank you for being our thank star. Y- thank you so much for having me. That's very sweet of you.
0: Ever since I was a child, I tried to be the best. So, what happened?
1: Andrew Reynolds, his new book is out this week. It's called Too Much Is Not Enough, a memoir of fumbling toward adulthood. It's out now. You can also see him in Black Monday on Showtime. And if you're like me, you can just rewatch Girls all the time to see even more of Andrew. All right, listeners, for the rest of this week and next week, I am on vacation. I'm so excited. Uh, my amazing colleague, Julia Furlan, will be hosting In My Absence. Uh, and then next Tuesday, she'll have an interview as well with Greta Lee, another alum of HBO's Girls. You probably know her now from her work in Russian Doll. Readily, do not miss it. That's next week with my friend and guest host, Julia Furlan. So, In My Absence, be good to yourselves. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.
0: I believe the Lord will reveal it. And you'll know it's all true you'll just feel it You'll be a more man by gosh a more
1: Please tell me that, like you and Nini still hang out in Kiki.
0: No, uh, <laughs> no. I, I have I ever seen Nini Leaks again. Um, I don't think I have. Wow. Between you and me, I don't know if oh, she yeah. would know my name. Right Ooh. Now. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Is she a diva? No, it's not that. I just think okay. like she was like on to the next project. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe she would. I don't know. Maybe she would. Maybe. Anyway. Maybe we'll reconnect. Perhaps Nini I if would you're listen. listening.
1: Nini, if you're listening, I want to I, I wanna see
0: it. Instagram live that. Meet me at Fred Siegel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> at the Planet Money podcast, we talk to anyone who can help us understand the economy. Fortune tellers, tango dancers. Obscure oh. government bureaucrats. Oh, the obscure ones are the best. Totally.
1: And of course, we talk to the smartest economists to explain everything from inflation and disinflation to... How Manatees Got Addicted to Fossil Fuel.
0: That is Planet Money from NPR.
1: In need of a good read or just want to keep up with the books everyone's talking about, NPR's Book of the Day podcast gives you today's very best writing in a pocket-sized show. Whether you're looking to engage with the big questions of our times or temporarily escape from them, we've got an author who'll speak to you. Catch today's great books in 15 minutes or less on the Book of the Day podcast only from NPR.